Hey there, this is Jamin Warren, and this is the Kill Screen Podcast. What happens when games account for the players' identities? Danielle Brathwaite Shirley's work does just this. Traversing game design, performance, and sound art, the London-born, Berlin-based artist constructs stratified game experiences that depend on the player's privilege. Someone who identifies as black and trans will have a distinct gameplay experience. Someone who identifies as cis and white will have a different one. Being careful about access, Danielle tells us, helps keep the archive autonomous. Her work not only fills in the gaps and ruins in the current archive, but builds an archive for the future, one that centers on the black trans experience. Here, Danielle tells us about her first creative impulses. It must have been when I was um, maybe playing The Sims and um, creating my own characters and the, the city and my family. I think that's when I kind of started getting into crafting something from scratch and using like, materials at your disposal. So my first kind of, I guess, in to, the, to like an art world was actually like the burlesque scene and the performing arts scene. I, I saw a lot of queer performers, a lot of drag queens, a lot of just stage performance in like small venues. And I would go every single week, multiple times a week to see these shows and to see these people perform. And I ended up meeting Travis Alabanza and we ended up just hanging out a lot. And so I would see the performances every time. And we just have a conversation around what it means to be trans. They introduced me to these like the words trans. I didn't actually know when I was growing up, I had no idea what that was. So I was just living my life as I was without having the words to describe what that is. <laughs> um, I didn't really like think about what the words were as I was living my life. I was just living my life. I didn't know there was this way of living. But this scene introduced me to a lot of other trans people and a lot of different ranges of trans people, an older generation of trans people, younger generation, people who implement it into performance, people who um, implement it into song, people creating videos, people dancing burlesque, like people dancing naked, people dancing with everything on and the kitchen sink. And so that's when I tried to start making things that were to do with these people, were to do with black transness, were to do with transness, were to do with identity. Um, and tried to capture what was happening, the conversations that were there, that were so much more forward thinking in these spaces. For me, those spaces, like the Coca Butter Club, I really wanted to kind of capture and record those moments, like in a moment where an environment was made for you, one, to get paid, but also for you to express yourself using the art form that best suits you. Uh, this felt like a much more experimental and open and specifically safer environment and so i think that's what kind of really pushed me forward to pursue this idea of like challenging identities and looking at what it means to archive someone in work now danielle tells us about what the medium of a game can offer as an archive she explains the game she designed black trans archive which functions as an archive it's accessibility dependent on the player's identity and i think it comes down to me being tired of, of things being passive like I'm very tired of people consuming things very easily, you know, and I think we live in a world that the point is to make something consumable. The point is to make something easily watchable, easily accessible. And for me, the access, I love everything being easily accessible, but I don't like things being passive because that's when people can start using it and playing with it in the way that they think it should be used. Archives are never neutral. I don't think they are. And I wanted to make something that 
really wasn't and told you it wasn't and depended on your choice, whatever you chose determined how open or what was shared or your experience through this. And so one, it wouldn't start without you actively being involved, but also it could kick you out depending on the choices that you made because it has a particular terms and conditions to it. And something about this autonomous archive felt safer to make. What we mean by like autonomous, an autonomous archive is like an archive that can, using very simple programs, I think, think for itself if the person using it should be using it. And for me, that's kind of an exciting thing because it means that we could start protecting certain things in the archive. For me, that's a problem with archives is that if you're archiving, it should be accessible in some way for it to be seen. But at the same time, if you're archiving things which are particularly violent and then you use them again in a violent way, then you have a system within an archive that is perpetuating the sort of violence that the archive itself is recording while pretending to be neutral. And so I think something about having an archive make those decisions from the point of view of who it's trying to archive is something that's a bit more, I don't know, important just to ensure that those within the archives are actually centered rather than whoever's in charge of it. Black Trans Archive was my first interactive, interactive archive ever. It was my first online work. It was my first of many things. And a large part of making it was actually making it with a bunch of other trans people. And we, I think we had 10 Black trans people. So we worked with, we did a call out just for Black trans people in London. And we also worked with a charity, a trans charity. A lot of these choices came from the conversations with them. So one, the characters were all designed by them. The landscapes were also designed by the stories they told. Uh, and the interactions that happened, which were the choices, actually came from a kind of role play session in which we talked about how these characters would interact with each other in this archive. And so from that, I kind of like took, okay, so, oh, this person wants to burn this city, that can become a choice. This person wants to talk about a hormone, right, I'll make a hormone gym and that will become this point. The choices kind of came from a conversation with all these other Black trans people. The choices around privilege actually came from, so originally, uh, there wasn't an idea to make like a, you know, a cis, a cis one and a black trans one. That wasn't originally the idea. But when we talked about access, we said, okay, we want to make it online. We want to make it sure that everyone who's black and trans can visit this place. The problem with that is once it's online, anyone can access it. And there's no way of me finding out your IP, sending me your email address, me looking at a photo. It wouldn't even, I wouldn't even be able to tell if you're back in I didn't even know. And so within that, we decided, okay, so we're gonna make choices for each person's identity so that they can select their identity and depending on that identity, will determine what they get to see and what questions they get asked. And so that came from the group. Like, I can't, I'm not gonna take credit for that. That came from the group. It came from us really understanding that an archive is accessible to everyone and making sure that the person's identity becomes part of the experience rather than them kind of thinking that it's a chance to look through a trans person's eyes because that's not what we're trying to do. Danielle walks us through how for Black Trans Archive, archival material and imagery form the basis of the textures in the game world. Well, when I was getting into 3D editing, I used to do it every day. 
uh, 3D designing. And because I was doing it every day, I didn't have an idea of the day, so it would become like my diary. And so every day I would just put anything from my day into these environments. So whether it's pictures, sound, text, whatever, like models of hormones, whatever, I would just put it in and try and fashion something from it. It's like a way of learning, but also a way of becoming personal. I was trying to make something that was for me, you know, personal for me. And that's kind of morphed into me being able to make environments that feel distinctively mine or feel distinctively like black and trans, at least from my perspective. And so this process of taking photos and using them to make textures or like the wall or the floor has been part of my work for a long time. It's just something that I do. It's just part of the practice. And so for me, during this process and during every single process, and you'll never know what is and what isn't, which is, is that I always use the example, but I often make grass out of pictures of hair and I often make walls out of like pictures of skin and like sometimes you'll see a, a shot that I've taken a picture and put into as a texture. The reason that it's so important to do is because I feel like as many layers that can be black and trans as possible that can represent the person in a kind of archival sense means that when I'm writing a story on top of that there's the foundation to hold it. And I work in excess, that's who I am. I'm always in excess as more and more is more. I, 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 don't, I don't know if more is better, but I can't pare down. If I'm trying to do something simple, it's still gonna have 16 choices in it. The more I try and cram in, in terms of like, right, I'm trying to archive you. I'm gonna put your eyes in the ceiling. I'm gonna put your, your legs on the floor. I'm gonna put your, the sound of your voice humming in the background. The more and more I put in, the more I feel like I will be able to talk about this person. Because I'm trying to create worlds that feel distinctively theirs. So the world better be made out of things that are distinctively them. Now Danielle tells us about why she's attracted to lo-fi aesthetics in her game design work. As an example, she tells us about the significance of digital fog in her project, I Can't Remember a Time I Didn't Need You. Yeah, I, so I love these lo-fi aesthetics. Um, one of the reasons is it's quick. It's very quick to make something out of what maybe 200 polygons and something about working quickly is that just like a sketch you can capture something about someone very quickly and also you can redo it something i really enjoy and i think that archives don't do as much is like redo is that maybe you didn't capture someone the first time but you can capture them the second time um, and so working in this low poly style allows you to do iterations, which is really important when you're trying to capture something precisely. I'm also a huge, huge, huge fan of like you using your imagination to figure out exactly what's going on. And so this low poly, like the PlayStation 1, like allows you to give you an, a sense of kind of what's happening. And then your brain would fill in like, okay, that fog is there in Silent Hill because this town is evil and like the fog is obscuring your view. But actually, they just couldn't render the city as a whole, so they had to cover it in fog, you know? And there's like the same in Spider-Man, it's like, and they put a story in Spider-Man on the PS1 saying, oh, Dr. Octopus filled the city up with fog. And then let's move on to actually what the real story is <laughs> because they just couldn't render below the buildings. But things like that for me create like an incredible atmosphere, very, like suffocating. And I've created a whole game actually that came from that fog called, um, I can't remember a time I didn't need you. And that yellow fog is actually inspired by that fog in Spider-Man. Just because that fog is so thick, it's so all-consuming, it's so obscuring, you don't know what's below there, but you constantly thinking, if you could go down there, maybe there is something hidden there. In these times where people were figuring out early graphics, they were just 
I'll be blunt. But they're basically just white men. They're white men doing this. And so they were exploring white men stuff, which was nothing. And so when I look at these things, I often see like many missed opportunities in terms of like trying to tell like a narrative, trying to think about what this thing could do in terms of like more hard hitting narrative than rather just using it to like make someone scared. And I think the themes that like could be involved within these graphics could be much broader now. And a lot of indie developers are like seeing that as an opportunity and like actually low poly aesthetics were great to make horror, so let's make horror. So there's like a PS1 horror scene which makes early PS1 style horror game because they know, they see the aesthetic and they say, okay, like we can make something from that. I kind of look at these kind of evolutions of graphics in the same way in that, right, this graphics was kind of bad, but at the same time, they could tell really good stories in this. I always kind of go back. So now I'm looking at wireframe graphics, text-based games in the 80s um, and those kind of aesthetics because they managed to tell compelling, impactful stories that lasted over the period of 10, 20 hours from 500 kilobytes of storage. And I'm really interested in that low storage, easily pass aroundable file that has a longevity. I'm really interested in that kind of archival thing that something that can actually say a lot about someone can be stored in the smallest bit of data. And so that's something I'm moving on to in the future. Here, Danielle tells us about the crucial aspect of sound in her game design work. She walks us through the kaleidoscopic process of recording, which she calls praise trans music. Sound is, for me, it's like an integral part of it. It sews everything together. And originally, I wanted to make all the sound with the participants. And I wanted to just record them for hours on end and then edit all that sound into different files. But I think I did end up doing that for a couple of songs, but not the whole thing. All that sound came from me needing to make sound. And something similar that I do in my sound process that is similar to the archiving one. Okay, so my process of making sound is I sit down in front of the computer and I, ne- I don't have an idea. I don't have an idea of what I'm gonna make. And then I'll say, okay, like, what do I wanna talk about? I'll write down three things I wanna talk about. Um, so in the credits, I say, I wanna say thank you to everyone that's being involved. It's kind of a process that I, I call praise transness music, where I'm like, okay, I wanna make a song that feels uplifting for trans people and makes me feel good while singing it. And so essentially I press record and I'll sing for about five minutes, whatever comes out of my mouth and I'll use a sheet as like an inspiration. And then I'll sing over that again, then I'll sing over that again, then I'll sing over that again, and then I'll edit that. And then I'll re-sing over that again, then I'll re-sing over that again, re-sing over it, and, and I'll edit that. And it's that kind of process of like continually packing the layers again, that eventually you come up with something that's really, it's what you want. And all I'm trying to do is capture what I'm trying to talk about. So if I'm trying to talk about like something painful or like feeling proud about being black, like I'm just trying to capture specifically that feeling of like feeling proud to be black, being like seeing someone that notices you and like thinking about your privilege. I'm just trying to capture the emotions, the feelings around that moment. So I need to feel that thing. And so it's like the whole process is me trying to get in that space. Everything that comes out of it seems very clean, but the process is a mess. Like I have to be honest, the process is a big mess, but that's important because it's important to create a lot of data. And let's say if I sung for five hours, I know only 20 seconds of it is probably going to be usable. And then that 20 seconds will probably make the entire song. It's like when you're painting, you're trying to like capture this moment and then something in the painting will click without you knowing. And then it's knowing, say, okay, 
that worked, I'm taking that out and expanding it. And that's kind of the, the way I make music. It's expanding from a painting that formed itself from the layers that you make. But one thing I also do, I've always done this, is that I use a version of Fruity Loops, which is the program I use to make music, that is free, which means that I cannot save anything. I have to make the track all in one go. And so the only way I can save something is exporting it, which means I can't edit the minutiae of it. Like I can only edit like by chopping it up. But for me, that pressure is something that's quite important for the work is that when you leave this, when you export it, and when it closes down on you, whatever is left is what you can use. And for me, that's like, that's part of archiving is that like, you're constantly losing things and constantly trying to bring them back and constantly trying to replicate them. And that frustration needs to be part of the process so that you actually get closer to talking about these frustrations of the archive, talking about what it means to be doing that. So for me, using this free program and having no option but to finish the song is what actually makes them I think maybe it may be impactful. That's, I think that's what the, the crux is, is that you have limited time to make them. You, you don't have stability around this song. You don't have stability around how long you can edit it for. So you better get it finished. And so giving you perspective, I have 100,000 files on my desktop computer. On my, and that's my desktop. That's the, the desktop of the actual computer. And so like, there's just this constant pouring of like stuff. And I feel like you just need that to work with. Like you may take like a, a video of something like two years ago and it only becomes relevant now. And you're like, oh my God, this is amazing. You know, at the time you were like, ah, I'm failing everything, you know? And I feel like this is the same thing with like, it's like having enough, I, I like the work to work around, like it's kind of like in the 360, having enough things around you so that when the right time comes, you can just take it and put it in. And finally, Danielle gives us a peek into her upcoming projects, in particular, a game that centers an anti-colonial history of piracy. Uh, so I'm working on a big god, like a big bunch of stuff. Um, and so most recently, yeah, I've gotten into like piracy and the history of piracy. And when I tell people this, they're like, what? What, what are you talking about? And something I was learning about piracy when I was researching it is that these ships had a particular kind of community agreement when you were on the ship. You agreed to the community rules of the ship and they're different for every single ship depending on your captain. And there were also ships that were black ships, people who were trying to escape slavery or people that were existing before slavery, queer ships and all this kind of stuff that you don't really get told about when you think of pirates. You think pirates more of Captain Captain Hook who comes and is like, I want the gold. But actually there was a bunch of like pirates that were just trying to escape what it was to live in a particular system. And so I'm really interested in talking about this history of piracy in terms of what it meant for colonialism, what it meant for the British rule. The British were actually very involved in piracy. The Spanish were very involved in piracy. They kind of used the piracy as their private FBI sometimes, um, but also at the same time, what it would mean now to have a ship that could hold black transness, what that would mean, what would you have below the cargo? What would you have on the deck? All this kind of stuff. So I'm currently creating a game where, based on the, the literal ancestors who you have, so where you came from, the, the history you have, based on your family ancestry, you get to sail a particular ship. And depending on that ship, um, will determine if you're allowed cargo or not, what kind of story will be told to you while you're sailing on the ship. I'm like really excited about it. I'm just really excited to tell the story of history through and on the sea. 
Thank you so much for listening to the Kill Screen Podcast. I'm your host, Jamin Warren. This podcast was produced with help from Alex Westfall and music from Lucene. If you like what you heard, please follow us on Instagram at killscreen.dot.com or on Twitter at killscreen. Thanks so much and have a great rest of your day.